we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless, and unfortunately not with my friend and co-host Ron Baker again this week, but I have every confidence, and I'll give you an update on him soon, that he'll be back shortly. But on today's show, folks, I am honored to have with us for a third time on the Soul of Enterprise, Dr. Paul Thomas. Thanks Dr. So Paul, welcome back on. to this. Yeah, yeah, welcome back. We're glad to have you back. And uh, unfortunately, Ron couldn't be with us because I know he's a huge fan of yours. You were with us previously on episode number 269, in which we discussed the subscription model in, in medicine. And we'll probably talk more about that today. But And then also we had you back episode 286, right as the coronavirus was just starting to, to break loose. And you, we thank you for sharing with our listeners your, your thoughts on that. So let, let's, let's quick talk about that to get that out of the way so we can move on to the more important things, which is your book. But what's, what's going on in your neck of the woods with Corona? Yeah, I mean, I think that the state of Michigan has done a good job of controlling coronavirus. We acted pretty quickly in terms of looking at the landscape of other states. We acted pretty quickly to shut things down, and that really reduced the spread of coronavirus um, shutting down bars and restaurants. And that was a really painful process for a lot of my fellow business owners. However, um, they did apply and get grants through PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program. And then also the city of Detroit and some other philanthropic organizations and corporate organizations made grant funding available to help people through. Um, so we saw a nice flattening of the curve here in Michigan. Um, but now I think we're dealing with another wave of this ever since um, Memorial Day, uh, especially among younger people. People under 45 have started going out to mingle, to socialize, to drink at the bar in some states. And we're really seeing another spike of coronavirus cases um, across the country. Um, today, there were reported 38,000 new cases. Um, so that you know brings our total to almost two and a half million cases, and unfortunately, 127,000 deaths. So um, we still have to be really vigilant. Um, we got to wear our masks and wash our hands and maintain social distance and be smart and judicious about when we go out and where we go out. The good news is, is that the, the death rate does seem to be going down. And I, I don't know what that's attributed to. I guess nobody really knows whether it's just not getting to the most susceptible, which is fantastic, right? That, right. that, that at least the death rate's coming down, or at least as of now, because there is a lag time on that, obviously. Sure. Yeah, I think the death rate's down because, you know, like I mentioned previously, this second wave seems to be affecting more folks under the age of 45 years. And we've seen that the coronavirus has had the highest mortality rate among those who are senior citizens above 85 years of age. And it still has a pretty high mortality rate for those over 65. So if you're under 45, you know, you're very unlikely to die from this, but also you act as a vector and move it around. So um, still got to be vigilant there. 
Right. So, so make sure definitely to, to social distance, but stay away from older people who are the, and those who are most vulnerable. And, and certainly if people are vulnerable, they, they should double down on staying in. Oh, definitely. And yeah, it's like, if you're, um, you know, 30 something and you're going out to the bar, that's, that's one thing, I guess. Um, you know, cause most of your servers are going to be younger and most of the other people there are going to be younger as well, but then don't go visit grandma next weekend, you know, for, <laughs> you know, 4th of July party. That's not going to be helpful for anybody. Yeah, no, re- re- really, really a bad idea at, at that point. Yeah. Well, th- thanks. Thanks for that update. How about your practice though? Just uh, your practice is, is good from that perspective. You haven't had too many people c- come down or. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've had a few, you know, more than a few positive cases. We are in Detroit. Detroit was hit pretty hard early on in this, especially, um, in April, uh, late March, early April. And so we did see a lot of positive cases, um, but we mostly helped to manage this by keeping people at home and we only had to send a couple people to the hospital. Um, so, you know, it's a blessing that you know, our patients did really well through this. All right. Well, outstanding. Thanks for that update. Let's, let's move on to the more fun stuff, which is your, your book that came out in May. Is that correct? I think that it was May 20th. I have the yeah. date right on that? Yep. Um, and yes, we published it ahead. in May. Yep. Startup DPC, how to start and grow your direct primary care practice and available as a book and also Kindle edition, which I, I think is is great as well. Uh, first question out of the gate, how's the book doing? It's doing really well. Um, it was great to publish it. It was great to get it out there. And I'm really pleased by the reception that it's had from my direct primary care colleagues. Um you know, we, I have had a lot of my physician colleagues purchase a book and talk about how impactful it's been. And that's really the point. I'm really trying to help other doctors start their own DPC practices. And if they're feeling trapped in the fee-for-service system, I want to give them a hand and get them out of that dysfunctional system. Sure. And the first question I have for you, I think we did talk about the, f- the first time we spoke, but I think it's an important distinction to make right out of the gate. And what, what is the, the, the difference between direct primary care and concierge medicine? Right. I think that's a great question. Concierge medicine really focuses on, you know, the top, let's say, 5 or 10% income earners, the really wealthy people in our country who have, you know, a, let's say, high dedu- uh, low deductible, high premium health insurance plan. So they're paying a lot for their health insurance to start with. And then they can afford on top of that to pay like $2,000 or $2,400 a year um, to have enhanced access to a primary care physician who still bills their insurance for the visits and for the labs and for the meds. And so it's like an add-on and an extra cost, um, but for an enhanced service for wealthier folks versus direct primary care. uh, We take care of everyone of all income uh, ranges and you don't need to have health insurance to be a part of our healthcare service. You can simply, um, you know, if you pay the $50 a month at our office, it's $49 a month for most of our members, $10 a month for kids. You can have access to us anytime you need us by phone, text, email. And um, we really go above and beyond by actively lowering the cost of meds, labs, and imaging services. So really trying to look out for people's pocketbook as well as their overall health and wellness. 
And this is great because, as you know, Ron and I have spent a lot of our career working with other uh, professional service firms, and uh, we just love the fact that you, you and others are innovating around this this business model. And w- one of the things, and I know it's later in the book, but I do want it to to get to it now a little bit earlier because uh, Ron and I have been working with a lot of accounting firms, other professionals, having them switch to a subscription model. And one of the questions that we get on a frequent basis is one that you get, which is what about the hybrid model where you're taking insurance and trying to do direct primary care? You recommend against that, don't you? I do. I, um, I really don't advise people to, you know, double dip as it were, because uh, for a couple of reasons, um, first, you know, it's, you're operating two completely different businesses. You know, the, the joke is like you're op- operating a vegan steakhouse where, <laughs> you know, you're trying to cater to two completely different crowds and the fee for service model or the insurance model in medicine is a really high volume. You need a a large office space to take care of people in that kind of model. Then you need your billers and your coders and the direct primary care model. You can be very lean. You need less space. You need less employees. So when you put those two together, it really doesn't make sense. And then you cannibalize your patients. So like if you're offering um, a fee-for-service or an insurance-based model of care, your patients have no incentive of switching over to the direct primary care model because they're just going to hang on to the, their insurance and use their insurance for your service. So you're kind of reducing the number of people who would be willing to spend that you know, 50 or $60 a month to see you. Yeah, so that would be a, a huge challenge. I like that, and and you know, we we talk about that. If a vegan steakhouse, one of the analogies we we use is that you can't be McDonald's and Ruth's Chris. Oh, so of course. Similar yeah, type I mean, thing. You're, yeah, I think it really comes down to customer um, analytics and figuring out who your best customer is, or creating a customer avatar. Who's the person that's going to eat at McDonald's and who's the person that's going to re- eat at Ruth Chris. These are two very different people with different income levels. They drive different cars, they shop at different places. And the same thing goes for a direct primary care service versus a fee for service um, or insurance based service. You know, it's a very different customer. So how can you identify your ideal customer and bring them in to your practice and make them feel comfortable with your new model and, and deliver that excellent care and service that um, makes you different in the marketplace. Sure. And that's a great point. But, but even if they do, you know, and occasionally people who are, are Ruth, like to go to Ruth's Chris on the, on, on for fancy dinners, they'll go to McDonald's, but they have the expectation. So even if they do drive the same car, it's uh it, it's a different expectation from the very outset. You would be very disappointed walking into a Ruth's Chris and expecting McDonald's prices and vice versa. Yeah, totally. So one of the things that you talk about at the beginning of the, the, the book is that electronic medical records were billing tools, not clinical care tools. And I'd really love for you to explain that. Sure. Um, if, if you don't know, you know, doctors have to write all of, your, all of this information into what's called an electronic medical record or an electronic health record. And you'll hear me say EMR or EHR interchangeably. So this electronic medical record or EMR is just a tool that the doctor uses to justify billing from the insurance company. Um, and it's full of check boxes and form data. And there's very little 
useful information. There's a few sentences that the doctor will write at the end of the note called the assessment and plan. And the rest of it is kind of form data that the doctor clicks or you know, every time you go to see the doctor, the medical assistant gets your vitals, all of your vital signs, because you won't get reimbursed if you don't have those. And then they have to ask you one thing about your social or family history. So they'll always ask you, are you a smoker? Are you smoking right now? No? Okay, check that box. Okay, we can get paid for this visit. That's why they always ask that one question. And usually only that one question about your family or social history. And so these EMRs have morphed into uh, a tool that should be interchangeable and read by everyone in the medical profession to these isolated siloed um, pieces of data that can't be read by everyone and that are only used to justify billing from the insurance company. And that that interchangeability is really frustrating as a clinician because when the EMR came out or when EMRs came out, um, it was understood that they would be able to communicate and it's just not the case. So you end up putting all this data into a silo that nobody else can read. And it's very frustrating. And have to be become to the point where it is on purpose that they are different based on insurance company to insurance company. Oh, based on hospital to hospital, really. So like, you know, big hospital system, a wants to retain you for life. So your birth records are going to be there and your child's pediatric records are going to be there. And so then they're going to send your, your child to the pediatrician in the system so that they can see those notes from the pediatrician at the time of birth and on and on and on. So you're quote unquote stuck in that system. And if you ever want to leave, it's nearly impossible to get all of your records out of that system and into the hands of your new doctor. It takes a a records request. It can take months um, and they'll fax everything over. So they'll literally print everything out and then scan it into a fax machine and fax it over to your new doctor. And they can sift through, you know, 50, 100, 200 pages of medical records just so they could understand what's going on with you. Wow. We're all the way up to fax machines. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's it's like (laughs) extremely frustrating as a doctor that's out. I'm outside of any system. I'm independent. And so if I ever want to learn about my patient's medical history, I have to send a records release and kind of sift through a bunch of data um, from a fax machine. That's, that's frustrating. Amazing. Well, we are up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Of course, the page for the, for the show is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes, previews to upcoming shows and our archive page with 290 or so episodes already up there. But right now we want to hear a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and his book is Startup DPC, How to Start and Grow Your Direct Primary Care Practice. But, and his name is Dr. Paul Thomas. But I just want to talk to all of our professionals that are out there that have accounting firms or law firms. If you are considering going into your own practice, this book is for you even if you're not a physician, because it is chock full of some great insights and tips just from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And to that end, uh, Dr. Paul, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, starting from scratch versus converting your practice. Now you started your practice from scratch. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I did my residency, you know, about 30 minutes away from where I started my practice. So it was kind of a new community, new place. But you've been helping people make the transition. And I think this it's about 50-50, maybe 57% are new, 43% are people who convert or vice versa. So it's, but it's split down the middle. And you're doing a lot of work helping people. Um, talk about e- even if you're mid-career, should, can you start from scratch or, or can you convert? Which, which one would you lean towards? Sure. Um, you can do either. A lot of doctors who own their practices, um, it would you know, you, at that point you would convert, um, your practice to direct primary care. Um, or you could, you know, have somebody take over your patients in the fee for service world and open a practice next door. That's specifically for direct primary care. Um, you know, keeping those two business entities completely separate and giving people different options in your community. Um, where you would start it from scratch is if you are employed, so if you're employed, uh, you can't uh, typically seek out the patients who are currently seeing you through your, let's say, bigger corporate job because you may not be able to solicit those patients. A lot of doctors have a non-solicitation clause in their employment agreement, so they can't just email all their current patients and say, hey, I'm starting a new direct primary care practice and it's outside of the system and I'm, I'll be right down the street, so come see me. Um, and you might even have a geographic restriction where you might need to be two, five, or 10 miles away from your original location. And so I help people navigate those challenges because there's some co- complexity there. It's uh, not black and white. It's not cut and dry. There, there's nuance. There's a lot of things that you have to think through. 
um, branding, location, um, how if you have that non-solicit clause in place, what you can do to recruit patients and how you can spread the word in a non-official capacity and what that might look like for you to build up your practice ahead of time so that when you open your doors, you already have a group of patients that are embracing your practice model and wanting to engage with your service. Yeah, it's very similar. I think in the accounting profession, there was a lot of these you know, non-solicitation agreements. But if they, if the the customer, in your case, patients finds you, they're certainly allowed to to go. You can't restrict that. Or if people try, but it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if the patient sees you post something on Facebook that you're you know starting a new practice, um, and that's not uh, explicitly uh, disallowed in your contract, that's a reasonable way to attract patients or you know, starting an email list um, outside of your um, work relationships with your patients and collecting email addresses on your website, all those things, you can build your practice slowly over time that way. Now, interesting, you say that one of the more common criticisms is, uh, quote, abandoning patients who are not in your practice, and that the, the people will say to you that if, if every primary care physician became a direct primary care doctor, there would be a, the shortage was, would worsen. Do you believe that to be true? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, I think that's a really tired argument. I think we've really worn that one out. Um, but I'll say this is, you know, um, being a family physician in the fee-for-service world is a very difficult job. It's, you're doing a lot of heavy lifting. You're seeing 25 to 35 patients a day. Um, it can be thankless and soul-sucking. And unfortunately, a lot of physicians uh, commit suicide. We lose about 300 doctors every year to physician suicide, and it can stem from uh, burnout, uh, depression. Uh, doctors can't really seek out depression and anxiety treatment because they could potentially have their license suspended. So a lot of doctors will self-medicate with alcohol and other substances, slip into uh, substance abuse problems, and sometimes overdose deaths. Um, some pretty dark stuff. But all that being said, um, we have a f physician shortage in primary care because it's not a desirable space. It's not a great space to be in as a professional physician. So I advocate for more and more doctors going to direct primary care so they can set up successful, thriving, fulfilling practices that aren't emotionally draining, that they can sustain for a career rather than for 10 years only before they burn out. And so I really see direct primary care as a viable way to bring more people into the profession. And if we can demonstrate to medical students and residents that starting your own practice, hanging your own shingle, or joining up with an existing direct primary care group uh, can give you a fulfilling practice, a thriving medical career, then we'll see more and more doctors choosing direct primary care and therefore family medicine and primary care careers, which will ultimately allay that physician shortage in the future. Yeah, I tend to really agree with your analysis on that. It just just makes a lot of sense that because so many so many doctors, as as you say, they have huge medical debt. They're they're incented to really go into a specialty from the very beginning, and even even if they do have a desire for for to be a general practitioner, it's almost an uh, an incentive and a, and a financial necessity that they not. Right, especially if you have a really high medical student debt load, like in the three hundred dollars or $400,000 in student loan debt, which is not uncommon for medical students. The average debt is about $190,000. 
uh, for a graduating medical student. And if you're coming from out of state, it's easily double. It can be 380, 400. So, wow. you know, a lot of times it's just a financial choice and it's as simple as that. And then the, the other thing you could bring into this conversation is just kind of like the libertarian kind of mindset of, you know, I, I want to deliver services on, on my own terms. and I don't want to be forced into a, a system that I you know, don't love working in. And so I think if you, if you allow people to work in a space that they enjoy working in every day, you can create a much better experience for everyone involved, patients and physicians and the community. Yeah. Would you write that one of the greatest lessons that you've learned is a maxim, it's not the decisions, it's the decisiveness. I really, I really love that. I, I like expand on that for me. Right. I think a lot of doctors are really risk averse people and they want to make the best decision all the time. And so you're trained in medical school and residency to make the perfect decision for your patients every time. And there's no tolerance for mistakes. So that uh, ability to make mistakes, make errors and move forward is really, um, there's no opportunity for doctors to learn like that. It's more like you kind of leave no stone unturned and you read as much as you can to make the perfect decision. But in business, if you want to be successful, you have to make a lot of decisions quickly. You have to make a lot of mistakes quickly and learn from those mistakes. Um, and so I say, to sum all that up, I say it's not the decisions, it's the decisiveness. If you're trying to determine between one electronic medical record and another, you know they're both probably pretty good. Make a good decision and move on. And if if you're 100% sure on something, you've waited too long and probably squandered an opportunity. Yeah, I've learned, learned something similar, especially with consulting is like when you're, you're 80% ready, you go ahead and launch the other 20%, you can do course corrections to improve. Yeah, exactly. So I, I want to ask you something on, on a very uh, personal note, but you write, write this in the book that I, and I thought this is very interesting that you had to get over your personal discomfort with money. And um, I, I wanted to explore this with you because you grew up with some negative beliefs around it. Money doesn't grow on trees. Um, money is the root of all evil, which of course is, is uh, I love how people quote that because they're missing the first part, which is love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah, exactly. And, and they, that's a, there's a big difference there. Uh, what, why, uh, talk about that struggle. I'm really interested in that, that part of your life. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of doctors go into medicine to um, be altruistic and give back. And, you know, I, I certainly grew up around some negative beliefs, you know, in, in church, uh, uh, certain family members said negative things about money. And um, that kind of sticks with you. And I think that it took me a, a while and it took me reading books by successful business people to understand that uh, money is a tool, just like a stethoscope is a tool. And it's not inherently good or bad. It's what you do with that tool that makes the difference. And so I think a lot of doctors struggle with this as well. They're, they would feel greedy, you know, handling money. Like, uh, you know, I, if you have a successful DPC practice with three physicians, you're likely handling a million dollars in revenue every year. And that might scare some doctors. So, um, I wanted to include that in the book because I know that's a barrier for some doctors that I've consulted with. I know it's a barrier for medical stu students that I went through. 
school with. I know it was a barrier for residents I uh, was in residency with. They didn't want to negotiate their contract for more money because they felt, you know, dirty about it or it didn't feel right. They should just be grateful with the money that they were offered and move on from there. And I think that um, I wanted to include that in the book to help other physicians through this issue and also help myself through these issues around money. Yeah. And mo- money is just a, just a measuring stick. And, and one way to put it is, is your bank account is an, is an indicator of the good you've done first because people give you money because you're doing good things for them. That's what, that's the medium of exchange. It's not bad or, or, or good. It's just a medium. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's it. And I like it. I like looking at it as a, as a tool. If you, I kind of include this in the book. It's like, if you want to end homelessness in your community, or allay homelessness in your community, would you be more successful with $10 or with a million dollars? And I kind of approach my patient care in that way. More money allows me to buy the best tools and equipment, which allows me to deliver the best care for my patients. That's right. The Good Samaritan had to have the money to pay the innkeeper to to be in charge of the person that he was helping. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, this is great stuff, but we are up against our, our next break. I uh, want to remind you that the place for our bonus episodes, as well as our show without commercial interruption, is patreon.com slash TSOE. That's a great place to where you can sign up and receive the show without commercials and with also get bonus episodes. So, But right now, we want to get a word from our sponsor. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it from the boardroom to you voice america business network tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are on with dr paul thomas whose book is startup dpc how to start and grow your direct primary care practice 
doing great on on Amazon and other places right now. But I want to talk to you about something that's near and dear to the heart of the listeners of the Soul of Enterprise, and that is pricing. As you may know, Ron started out by writing a book in the late 90s called uh, The Professional's Guide to Value Pricing, and certainly uh, direct primary care falls under that model. So let's, let's talk about it. How did you come up with your pricing model? Well, basically, I looked around at different successful direct primary care practices. Um, there was one in my state when I started. I was the second one to start in Michigan. And then I looked at a couple other successful doctors that I visited. I visited uh, Dr. Josh Umber over in Wichita, Kansas. I visited um, another physician in Colorado. And I really looked at what they were offering, the service they were providing, what all was included. And I wanted to you know, emulate the successful price points that they were having. So I also took into consideration that in Detroit, in my community, the average household income is $26,000 each year. So I wanted to keep that in mind when I set my prices as well. So I, I ended up going with $10 a month for children and adult memberships start at $49 a month. If you're over uh, 40, it's $69 each month. And so it puts our average per member per month around $58 each month. And uh, with, you know, 500 members that makes, you know, that makes the wheels of the business turn, so to speak. And, um, you know, just from a business plan standpoint, I put it all down on paper and I anticipated, you know, not collecting, let's say 10% of the revenue as a worst case scenario. And with all those things considered, it's still, looked like a really good business and a really good plan. I had a couple of my mentors read it. I had a couple of my colleagues read it and they said, it looks great. Just go with it. And I did. And it's worked out great so far. And is that, and you don't send out bills. Do you just charge a credit card or do an electronic funds transfer at the beginning of every month? Exactly. It's an automatic charge to your credit card, debit card, or ACH payment. So directly to your bank account for that, you know, 50 or $70 a month. Okay. And why did you consider a family plan? Um, initially I did offer a family plan, but um, I realized that I needed to keep everybody at the same rate. Otherwise the business plan wouldn't really work out. So you know, initially I'd given like a $10 off if you sign up a second member. And so I have a lot of people grandfathered in on that because it was a really good deal. Um, but we stopped offering that about a year into the practice. And, you know, that's and a, another thing about your, your pricing is it can change. You know, we could increase our prices by a dollar or $5 a month. And I don't think we'd get much pushback because we do deliver so much value for that membership dollar. And you haven't had a, a price increase as of yet, correct? No, we haven't. We've been operating for close to four years and our prices <clears throat> have stayed the same. Okay. Now, you talk about uh, Dr. Brian Hill, uh, who talks about, he, I guess he has a practice that's exclusively f uh, in pediatrics. And he has a really interesting model because it's, it's sort of the reverse of yours because he charges $70 per month for younger kids. And then it gets cheaper as you get older until a certain point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So pediatrics is a different animal. It's good. You know, children <laughs> need a lot more work up front. Um, you know, when you have a newborn, you have a newborn visit two days after delivery, you have a one week, uh, two week visit, 
Then you have a one month, two month, four month, six month, sometimes a nine month visit and a one year visit. So you're looking at six to eight visits in the first year. And so that can really add up onto the doctor's time. And so I think Dr. Hill was super smart in setting his price points like that. And it makes logical sense. And as the children age, they're going to need less, you know, fewer interactions with the physician every year. Whereas in adult medicine, um, the young adults are going to need less time with the doctor. Older adults are going to need more time with the doctor. So it makes logical sense, intuitive sense that older adults are paying slightly more for their medical services each month. And when, um, do you take young, young kids, do you take infants into your practice or no? Yes, we do. We uh, do see infants and toddlers and, uh, we, uh, state that you have to have an adult membership when your child signs up. That kind of just like hedges the amount of time that we spend with each child. Okay. So that, that, that's how your model works is that you have to have an adult membership to have a child membership in, in, in there as well. So that makes a lot of sense. Whereas I guess Dr. Hill is just seeing exclusively pediatric patients. That's right. Cause he's licensed to see people probably up to age 21 is the, the oldest pediatricians will see patients. And then after mm-hmm. that, they transition them over to a family doctor who can see both children and adults or an internal medicine doctor who can see adults only. And while we're on the subject of pricing, one of the things that you do talk about also is whether or not you should charge an enrollment fee. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I really don't charge an enrollment fee for my practice because it's a new model. It's a new concept. People have to feel comfortable with it. And if you charge an enrollment fee, it's just another barrier between uh, your patient and them signing up. So basically, I want to make this as frictionless as possible, as easy as possible for people to sign up. We do have a three-month minimum in the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, we, we're guaranteed that they'll be with us for three months. Um, and beyond that, you know, if they move, something changes, job change, insurance change, um, they just have to give us a one-month heads up. Okay. And they can cancel and, their service. And how's your churn rate been? Uh, it's been pretty good. On average, we're signing up about 30 to 32 new patients each month, and we lose about 11, 10, 11 patients each month. And so we're having a net new patient growth of about 20 new members each month. Okay. So, so still growing, which is great. And uh, did I see on LinkedIn that you just added another doctor? Yeah, we, we actually just hired a third physician to help us keep up with the increasing demand for the service. And that doctor is actually going to be operating out of a second location in Farmington Hills, which is about 20 minutes northwest of our current location, just gives us an additional geographic coverage. And one of the big reasons why we did this is we've had a lot of companies, larger businesses with 200, 300 employees seek us out and say, we'd like to contract with you, but do you have an option for Oakland County, which is you know, the county just north of where we're at in Wayne County. And so far we've had to say, no, we don't, we're sorry. But now we can say, yes, we have a new office in Oakland County and we'd be happy to help you with your employees. You're a chain. Yes, we're a chain. (laughs) We officially are a chain business. Never did I think I'd operate a chain business, but here we are. There you are. It's been real. (laughs) 
That's great. That's great. Well, congratulations. Let, let's talk a, talk a little bit about the, the, the thing, the last thing you said, and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, and that is companies contracting with you for a, for a, a group of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is becoming more and more popular as time has gone on. As individual people have enjoyed our service, used our service, had great experiences with us. They've told their friends, they've told their coworkers, and sometimes the person who signs up is a small business owner themselves who um, may not afford, be able to afford private insurance, and they love it so much that they want to offer it to their employees. That's happened uh, more than a few times with some small restaurants in the area. And if you have fewer than 50 full-time equivalents as a business owner, you don't have to offer health insurance, but they do want to offer some sort of healthcare benefit. So they end up seeking us out for those services. And that's great. So you end up in usually the entire business people or, or just people who are, are um, want, want the service. Yeah, it's, they've done it a few different ways. I've had a few, more than a few different companies sign up and everybody's a little bit different. Some companies, they will only offer it to employees after a year of being with the company, just as like an incentive to stay with the company more long-term. Um, other companies will offer it to everyone and it's whoever signs up and then they'll invite us out to talk to everybody each year. And, uh, that's been a great way to operate. And there, you know, are a few other different ways. Um, so it's, it's been good and it's been great working with these small businesses and offering their employees and the company as a whole, something of value. Okay, cool. Well, we've got about 90 seconds till our break. And rather than move on to another topic, I want to just insert like kind of a random thing that I want you to talk a little bit about. And I don't know if you're associated with this directly or not, but uh, I wanted to share this with the audience. And that is the DPC mapper tool. So it's, I believe it's mapper.dpcfrontier.com. Is that your site or is that just a site that you are made aware of? Um, That's a site I've uh, participated in. And I'm still on the mapper. And this is uh, from Dr. Phil Eskew. He's a physician and a lawyer. And he started this website to help promote the idea of direct primary care. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Currently, there are 1,285 DPC practices in 48 states and Washington, D.C. There's two states without DPC practices, and I believe they're North and South Dakota. Um, So it's been tremendous watching that grow. When I first launched my practice, there were only 400 practices or like 380 practices in the U.S. So it's kind of cool being in the early part of this growth. Well, it, we'll have to work on that North Dakota. I actually ha, 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 am friendly and on the Christmas card with Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota. So I don't know, is, there, is it a legal issue or is it just that there's nobody opened up in Fargo yet? Well, I think it's a density issue because... You know, the city of Detroit has 600,000 residents, roughly. I think all of North Dakota, correct me if I'm wrong, has about 600,000 residents. And so, you know, it's the issue of pulling enough people. But, you know, if somebody started this in Fargo, I think they'd be successful. Yeah, no, it's one, I think it's one of two states that only has one House of member of the House, which means it's more important to be the member of House than it is to be a senator, which is kind of oh, no. weird. <laughs> so, 
So, but anyway, some, some, some great stuff. Oh, we're going to move on and talk a little bit about marketing. And one of the things that you point out is that seven out of 10 customers will leave a review for your business if they're asked to. So I'm going to ask our people to at, review us right now. If you are listening to this as a podcast, please turn off or, or put it on pause and jump over to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. And also do us a favor and make sure that if you're listening but haven't subscribed, that you do subscribe on your favorite podcast player of choice. Uh, Want to make sure that you get every single episode right delivered right to your device. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and I can't believe if we are with our, our, on our last segment with our third episode with Dr. Paul Thomas. He is the author of Startup DPC, How to Start and Grow Your Direct Primary Care Practice. And again, I mentioned if you are a professional, you need to read this book. It is not limited to people who are just uh, opening practices for medicine, but others as well. Um, I'm gonna. We're gonna start, and I'm. I'm sure that my my uh, my our, our person who runs our social media, Greg, is gonna be happy when we start. We'll start talking about marketing because you are a fantastic marketer. But I want to share this great quote with that you you said that a marketing specialist once told you, "If your website sucks, you suck." Yes, it's true. I was actually um, involved in the startup scene in Detroit for all small businesses. And I went to lunch with two marketers and I was just floored when this guy said this to me. And I was like, okay, I understood. And that like has stuck with me forever. And you look at different businesses and it's kind of true. You know, if you have a really stellar website, um, people know that, okay, you've put a lot of time and attention to the details. 
And that kind of carries through to the rest of the business as well. How attentive, how responsive people are when they show up at your business. So I've kind of kept that in mind and it's definitely, I've seen that across, across the board at some different places I've been to. And if I'm not mistaken, and, and uh, you're a Squarespace person, right? Oh, I use Squarespace. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, uh, Wix, Squarespace, um, you know, tomato, tomato, but it's like, it's a great tool. I, I loved using the, the Squarespace website. I like it because it's easy enough for me to edit it. Now, granted, I'm a, you know, I'm a millennial, so I'm kind of used to messing with technology and growing up with cell phones and things like that. So, um, but it's really easy to write a blog post, add a photo, put some tags on it, um, increase my social, uh, sorry, search engine optimization, and then share that across my social media channels uh, to get more people interested in my business. And that's been one of the biggest tools for me to grow my business. And you are, a, as am I, a, a big fan of uh, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk of VaynerMedia. And I want you to expound on his, his great quote, document, don't create. Yeah, I, I love Gary V. Um, I read his book, Crush It. Now, you know, when, when I say I love Gary V, I, I love a lot about them. Certainly there's, you know, any, any figure, any leader is going to say some things you don't agree with, but I agree with most of what Gary V says. And I love his document, Don't Create. I think it's profound. Um, but the whole idea behind that is if you have a goal, if you have a dream today that you want to achieve in five years, tell people about it today. Tell people why it's important to you what it would mean if you achieved it, what it's going to take to get there and share that with the world. And then, you know, do that every week. Talk about what you're up to, the things you've done, and it really resonates with people. You don't, I think a lot of um, doctors, lawyers, professionals are hesitant to put content on social media or their blogs because they feel like they need to make like a polished commercial, but that really doesn't resonate with people. Some of my biggest um, things on social media have been like removing an ingrown toenail or removing some earwax or uh, <laughs> delivering a medication by bicycle to one of my patients or making a house call, just really gritty, really raw, just a photo taken on an iPhone and shared on LinkedIn, um, just has a tremendous reach and impact beyond any glossy content that you could make with a, you know, a producer or a TV commercial or anything like that. And, and that's what you do. You mentioned, and I was going to bring that up with you, the whole, you delivered medicine to someone on a bicycle and made a whole big deal out of the fact that this was, I guess, your first time that you'd ever done that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've driven to people's houses. I've, I walked over to somebody's house to drop a, a medication bag one time. And I took a photo of me when I delivered the medication bag by car and it just wasn't that exciting. And so I recently bought a bike, you know, summer in Michigan is absolutely gorgeous. And I got this old free spirit um, from a guy in the community and it's a beautiful bike. I wanted to take it out for a spin and I needed to drop off a medication for one of my patients who was stuck inside on a conference call. So I dropped it off and, you know, made this nice post. And I, I think 40,000 people saw it on LinkedIn and it had like 700 reactions and tons of comments and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool what you can do with a cell phone. 
No, that it is it is incredible. That's 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 great stuff. What else, what else from a marketing standpoint? You mentioned the, the the website, I guess, being the hub of everything that you do. Uh, do you, do you have you have a newsletter? I think that you send out to folks, and is that for your practice? But is that and then and but also for your consulting practice as well? Yeah, I've, you know, I've started to have to segment things here a little bit, but you know, generally for my medical practice, I like to send out an email every month to everybody just a little bit of an update. Here's what's going on with Plum Health. Um, and you know we have about 2,500 email addresses in that list. And so there's probably a lot of people in that list who are on the fence and we want to stay top of mind for those folks that when they sick, get sick or if they get sick or when they're ready to decide to come over to the direct primary care side of things, we'll be available and top of mind for them. And you quote Benjamin Foley, who said, uh, building a personal brand is all the rage right now. Personal brands have always been around. They just used to be referred to as a different word, character. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I love that quote. And I think that, um, you know, again, doctors, professionals are averse to this idea of like having a personal brand. They think it's sleazy. They don't want to come off as like a Kardashian or something like that. And so they're hesitant to post on social media. Sometimes they'll change their name or you know, use their first name, their middle name to avoid any kind of interaction with the public outside of their close-knit group of friends. And I think that that's fine if you have a thriving business and you're already successful. But for the doctors who are looking to build a business, who are looking to grow their practice, who are struggling getting patients, they really need to lean into building their personal brand. And it's really just about communicating your character. Um, you know, it could be a photo of you at your child's baseball game. It could be a, a photo of you delivering meds to an elderly patient or making a house call or in general, just doing the good things that you do every day for your business and for your patients and sharing that with the world. And it makes a world of difference in how people perceive you. Well, we've got about 90 seconds or so left, and I, let, let's just begin sort of or end where we, we began. Uh, and, and this is another quote from your book uh, that I, I really just loved. You said, for me, you can't scale relationships. This direct primary care business is all about developing trusting relationships between doctors and their patients. And uh, I love that. But just uh, we've got about 90 seconds to, uh, left. Just, just wrap up on that point. Yeah, I think that too often uh, doctors feel and patients feel like the medical relationship is reduced to a transaction. And it's a transaction between an insurance company and the doctor and the patient is an afterthought. And I really want to change that in my business, in my brand, and in my practice. And I think we have changed that. We've made the relationship between doctor and patient paramount. And we focus a lot of time on connecting doctors with their patients and, and giving us enough time to work inside that space and make a difference for patients in that way. Um, and we want to get away from having medicine feel like a transaction and make it more feel like a relationship. And so when we're building our business, you can't scale uh, relationships in that it takes time to invest as a doctor into the community and into the people of the community and build those strong, trusting relationships that are going to create a, a thriving business for yourself. 
Outstanding. Dr. Paul Thomas, the author of Startup DPC, How to Start and Grow Your Direct Primary Care, available on Amazon and other bookstores. Also, his website, if you happen to be in the Detroit area and are looking for a physician, PlumHealthDPC.com. And if you're a physician who's thinking about starting up a direct primary care practice, look up StartupDPC.com. Dr. Paul Thomas, thanks so much for being a guest on The Soul of Enterprise. Thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful weekend. All right. Well, we'll see you in 167 hours. Looking forward to it. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Please join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. We will be replaying our episode with Dan Mitchell. And in two weeks, we will back, be back with another live show. It will be our, our uh, interview with Howard Hansen. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.